Briefs podcast. I'm your host, Ruth Streveler, coming to you from the School of Engineering Education at Purdue University. The goal of Research Briefs is to expand the boundaries of engineering education research. In these podcasts, we'll speak to researchers about new theories, new methods, and new findings in engineering education research. My guest today on Episode 5 of Research Briefs is Dr. Carl Smith, Cooperative Learning Professor of Engineering Education at Purdue and Emeritus Professor of Civil, Environmental, and Geoengineering at the University of Minnesota. Carl has been a tireless advocate for increasing student engagement, especially with cooperative learning and engineering education, for over 40 years. I've asked him to share his experience of working for decades to change engineering education. I think listeners who are also aspiring to be change agents can learn a lot from Carl's experience. Carl, welcome to Research Briefs. Thank you, Ruth. Delighted to be a part of your Research Briefs podcast. Can you tell us about how you came to learn about cooperative learning? I stumbled onto it when in my early days as a researcher, uh, I was assigned a third-year course. It didn't go very well, so I started looking for other ways of working with the students and discovered courses in the College of Education at the University of Minnesota. And one of the courses uh, that changed my life was a course in the social psychology of learning. And uh, the instructor assigned us to teams in the first class and uh, uh, emphasized interdependence and accountability. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is the way I worked as an engineer on the job and as a researcher, and why wouldn't one do this with undergraduate students? So that was early to mid-70s. And I would take it that at that time, people weren't doing that. It wasn't very common. Mm -hmm. At least in engineering. I don't know that it was common in anywhere in STEM education and higher ed. I mean, it's always been a part of education in the humanities with the seminar format and people coming and discussing things and and, uh, disciplines like social work. It's always... You know, people who work with groups of people, it's, I assume it's been a part of the pedagogy. Mm-hmm. But definitely not engineering. Definitely not engineering. So you were a, a renegade. <laughs> I was a pioneer. A pioneer. A re- well, most pioneers are renegades, too. To some extent, yes. And so you began then teaching, trying to teach that way in your engineering class? Yes. The first thing I did was adopt it in my own classes. And, uh, you know, the, my, my colleagues... They were, you know, respectful, and but I always noted I was treated with benign neglect. I said, oh, you know, Carl's doing that. And students seem to perform fine, and they don't complain. So, um, so I started, you know, implementing in my classes um, and doing systematic work, so collecting data in, mm-hmm. in my classes. And, uh, and then I had started a Ph.D. in, in metallurgy and then got so deeply engaged in... Uh, you know, the education work that I switched to uh, doing a PhD in educational psychology. And did you said you began doing research in your classes? Was that part of your dissertation work as well? Or? It wasn't part of my dissertation work. I did my dissertation work in another context. Mm-hmm. But I did publish the data from my classes. Mm-hmm. And that was pretty unusual as well, right? Um, 
Well, this was 81 when I first, I may have talked about it before that, but kind of the, the my initial rollout was uh, the Frontiers in Education Conference in 81 and a JEE article. And it was quite different from the norm. Uh, standard practice in engineering education at that time was faculty tried things in their class and often reported whether or not the students liked it. Mm-hmm. And if the students liked it, well, that was a, a success. That, that, that was pretty much the standard of evidence in the, in the early, late 60s, early 70s. And so, I mean, I came with a, you know, a, a systematic study grounded in a theoretical framework. I came with empirical data. So it was people, people were respectful. Mm-hmm. But I, 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 my sense is they didn't quite know what to do with it because mm-hmm. it was so different from what they... I don't know that most engineering faculty members at that time had, had ever seen um, a very systematically structured, you know, educational study. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So would you... So, so from hearing that, I, I think of a person who's really very willing to do something outside of the norm. And do you see yourself as that kind of a person then? Or um, how, were, how were you able to do this thing so very different and get up at a conference where this kind of work just is not presented and, and presented? Good question. Um, we thought about it that much. I mean, I did present in engineering education conferences. Mm-hmm. Um, and so these were folks who nominally are interested in their students' learning. And uh, you know, it would have been a different reception, I think, in a traditional disciplinary faculty mm-hmm. setting. But the, uh, the folks that I interacted with in the engineering education community uh, were by and large, I mean, they were very supportive. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, it was a small community, and um, and there were others who, a few others who were doing this kind of work. Mm-hmm. Others who had um, education backgrounds. Mm-hmm. People like Bill LeBold, who had a you know a PhD in psychology. Mm-hmm. Helen Plants, um, Larry Richards, who also has a PhD in psychology. Um, like me, most of most of us weren't all that public about it. Uh huh. You know, we got together at conferences and supported one another. And uh, but uh, what we were doing was quite different from the, from the norm. So you were able to find a a place where it was still maybe a little unusual, but not like heresy or just yeah, so it was strange. It, it was, the spirit was congruent. I mm-hmm. mean, these were folks by and large who really cared about student learning mm-hmm. and, and effective practices. I, I think they just hadn't seen anything as, as involved as a systematic study grounded in a theoretical framework, um, you know, pretty rigorously conducted. Uh-huh. Um, so they, they, they were respectful. It was just, they were, I think it was kind of, Puzzling for them, mm-hmm. that, but that, that that may be unfair. That I don't know that they were puzzled. It was quite different. Uh huh. So what I wanted to ask you about is kind of that transition from going 
from being kind of a researcher that's talking about your own work to really sharing those that approach with uh, the community at large. I would say you've presented hundreds of workshops about cooperative learning. Maybe thousands. Maybe thousands. Yeah. Over 40 um, years. Over 40 years, all around the world. Um, how did you decide that you wanted to create these kind of workshops, and what was the initial reaction of the engineering community to what you had to say? I'll start with the, with the local reaction. When I switched from doing a PhD, and, and, I, and I already had an instructor position, so I, I already had an appointment, was doing research, but was also working on a, on a PhD. When I switched, uh, my immediate colleagues, they were, they were respectful, but they were concerned. I mean, one comment that I remember is one person said, you'll always be a second-class citizen mm -hmm. if you don't have a PhD in engineering. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I had heard that and I had to take that into consideration. Um, I think my, my thought at that time was, when I finish my PhD, I'll just go somewhere that values it. Mm -hmm. And then when I finished, since I was also doing uh, reasonably good uh, traditional engineering research. You know, I was asked to apply for a position. And so, I, you know, I hadn't planned to, to stay on in Minnesota, but I was, I was asked. And, and I think, although it was a long time ago, and it's, it's hard to remember, but I think that's how I got more involved doing workshops. Mm -hmm. There were projects like the Foundations Coalition, which had put active learning as one of their foundational pieces. And so they invited me to come and do workshops. And so I think it was people becoming familiar with the work in conferences mm -hmm. and then following up saying, hey, we got this project. We're trying to design a different kind of learning experience that's more you know, research-based. Would you come and talk to our faculty? Mm -hmm. uh, some of those were... Um, you know, they, the, the, the annual faculty retreat, we had, they had to do something, they'd bring in somebody. Uh, and uh, I never enjoyed those all that much because there were always a lot of people who weren't that interested. Mm -hmm. uh, the places I enjoyed, with, I enjoyed working with the most were the, the folks who were really serious. They wanted to do something. Mm -hmm. Folks like uh, Lynn Bellamy and Barry McNeil at Arizona State. They just decided to implement this in their first year course. Uh, it was part of the Foundation Coalition again. I worked closely with them, and uh, it was experiences like that where I, where I worked with folks who really wanted to do something. As a side note for some of our listeners that maybe are newer to the community, can you give them some background on what the Foundation Coalition is? Or was it was one of the engineering education coalitions, which were partnerships. So they don't might not know what an engineering coalition is either. Ah, these were uh, collaborations across universities. Um, I don't recall what the you know what the overriding mission was. There were several of them, uh, in geographically distributed, and uh, the focus was improving engineering education. And they were NSF They sponsors. were all NSF funded. And multi-year? Multi-year, multi-institutional. And the time frame for those uh, broadly? 90s, early 90s. Okay. So you said your first, uh, your first 
kind of coming out party was in 81. That was the big one. On recollection, I, I did presentations in the North Midwest section. I remember being at Iowa State. That would have been probably in the late, mid to late 70s. Okay. And that may have been one of the first places where I, you know, locally presented this. And uh, so then then the major coming out was was at FIE? FIE and the JEE paper. Yeah. Which I should say is Frontiers in Education Engineering, uh, right as I... Um, our Frontiers in Education? Frontiers in Education. Yeah, it's a, a, a conference that was started by uh, the IEEE Ed Society uh, in the early 70s. They joined with uh, Educational Research and Methods Division of ASEE and the Electrical Engineering Division a little later. Uh, in the 90s, the IEEE Computer Society joined and uh, so they're, you know, they run an annual conference called Frontiers of Education um, since the early 70s. Mm -hmm. um, do you recall a bit then we're looking at the Foundation Coalition and the other coalitions happening in the early 90s. Can you recall a little bit about that decade of what was happening in the 80s for you before the well, Foundation one, one Coalition? Well, one pivotal event was um, in, in the late, mid to late 80s, I don't recall exactly, I, I had a couple international students show up on my doorstep. They were from the Norwegian Institute of Technology. And they were uh, on a tour of the U.S. Uh, looking at alternative pedagogy because they felt there had to be a better way of uh, learning to engineer than what they were experiencing. They garnered support from their rector, uh, and they'd gotten some corporate support. Uh, Siemens was one company that supported them, and there were others, and they, they did a tour of the U.S. and showed up on my doorstep and asked if they could sit in on my class. They had heard from Roger Johnson in the Cooperative Learning Center that Carl Smith was doing interesting things. So my automatic response was, no, I'm sorry, I don't allow people to sit in. And they were just devastated. Uh, and then I said, well, if, you know, because it'd be a waste of time. Uh, if you want to come and join a group and do the work or collect some data, do some observation, then you're welcome. You'll actually get something out of it. So reluctantly, they said, well, okay, we'll, we'll come. So they came to class, I assigned them to two different teams, and at that time, especially through the Cooperative Learning Center at Minnesota, which, which was extending its international collaboration, uh, I had several international visitors who would show up and, and you know, attend my class. And uh, this was, it was either an engineering systems course or it was the uh, how to model it, first year course, of all problem-based, proper learning, highly interactive. And after that class, those two students said, oh my gosh, this was really interesting. Mm -hmm. Would you come to Norway and work with our faculty? And I, I said, well, sure, I, I would love to. But I thought that would probably be the last I ever heard from them. Mm -hmm. Shortly thereafter, I, the telexes started coming. So this kind of, for those of you who know what the telex was, it was international communication form back in the 70s and 80s, and they wanted me to come right away. 
And I sent them back a note saying, I would be happy to work with you on one condition, that students participate in the workshop. This was initiated by students, it's for students. I'll come work with you as long as it's students and faculty. And they were quite hesitant. I said, uh, we don't know how faculty will feel about you know, having us in the workshop. And I said, well, if, if the faculty won't agree with it, fine, find somebody else, I mm -hmm. won't do it. And so the faculty agreed and I, I showed up um, on a very snowy day in, uh, I think probably 88, 89, and uh, immediately got on a train to go to Rondona, a ski resort where we held a multi-day workshop with students and faculty. And there were many, many memorable events during that, but uh, one most memorable was a faculty member said, there is no way I could get my students to do that after they had just experienced something. And I said, well, let's see. <laughs> so what do you all think, asking the students? And they said, oh yeah, we do that in so-and-so's class, we've done similar things. Sure, we would do that. And it was a, quite an experience for those 30 mm -hmm. faculty because they, they got to hear from the students. And I think this is, a, this is an important point. Uh, I don't think we involve students often enough mm -hmm. in these conversations about uh, what we know about how people learn and, and designing effective learning environments. It's only for them, right? Why they're the user? Why? Why, yeah, why are we would asking we ask them? Yes. Well, they also have a lot of experience in our classes. Yes. Yes. Um, so I know you have many supporters, and you've won numerous awards for your work. But I'm sure you've had your share of doubters too. What has been your greatest challenge in going forward, and what has sustained you in face of opposition to your ideas? Oh, my, my greatest challenge is, uh, is folks who just claim that they know that this wouldn't work in their class. And um, recently, well, maybe 10 years ago, I, I heard a comment from Ken Heller, who started the Physics Ed Research Program at Minnesota and uh, embraced cooperative learning in introductory physics in the 80s. And so they used the formal cooperative learning model. And Ken uh, uses this, this phrase, he calls it faith-based claims. <laughs> and so I have, that's one of my major challenges. Mm -hmm. People who say, oh, I know that this wouldn't work in my class. Trust me, I With know. With no evidence. With no evidence whatsoever. A faith-based claim. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I've, I've really grown less tolerant and I, at one time I was known as, as someone who was very, very tolerant. Barry McNeil, whom I mentioned at Arizona State, uh, asked me to go work with a group of faculty and at one stage, and I said, Bear, uh, Lynn, you have more experience in this area than I do. Why don't, why, don't, why don't you go? Why do you want me to go? And he said, Carl, you have a high tolerance for arrogance and ignorance. <laughs> You know, I I couldn't do it. All right, Lynn. <laughs> so apparently I was known as someone who had a high tolerance for arrogance and ignorance, but it's diminished over the years as more and more people are saying, look at all this evidence. Come on, people, just follow the evidence. 
So what has sustained you? Oh, the community. The community of folks like you, Ruth, and others who um, you know, are doing similar work, have been in similar situations, had met similar transitions. Um, it used to be a, a somewhat cloistered community. We would get together at conferences and other settings, and uh, uh, we weren't so public about it. Uh, but in the last uh, few years, it's just been delightful as more and more folks are coming out and saying, this is what I care about, this is what I want to do, and my goodness, I'm not the only one. And, you know. <laughs> I know uh, you and I are big fans of uh, Parker Palmer's movement approach to change. Um, I'm a big fan of Parker Palmer, well, period. Yes, but. yes. And um, in, in our earlier discussions about this, we had said how we could see some of Palmer's approach in, in uh, kind of the, the chronology of what happened here. Would you want to explain that model a little bit and... and Talk about how you uh, see that your your life is unfolding, as as Parker might say. Oh, thanks. Yeah, the Parker Palmer's movement approach to change is is based on his his reflection on movements like the civil rights movement, uh, the resistance to apartheid, and the first step is when individuals decide to live, and he calls it divided no more when they say, this is important to me, I am going to do this. And uh, I think that happened to me with that experience in that Ed Psych course. Um, and a, another piece I forgot to mention, and someone whom I, I owe, uh, owe a great debt of debt gratitude, was the research director of this lab where I worked at that time, uh, Ken Reed. He was quite supportive. Um, he said, well, this is different, but, um, you know, it's really important, and I support you. So I got support for conferences and, and other things. So, so that, that made being divided no more uh -huh. a, little, a little easier. Uh, and then, uh, as you were just mentioning, Ruth, um, at, at conferences and other settings, uh, I found others. Mm -hmm other like-minded like people or, or people who'd been through similar experiences uh, and we came together, we found one another. And I think, and that's the second step in, in Parker's uh, movement approach. And, uh, and that also, I think, made it easier to take the third step, was to, which is going public. Right, right. You know, to talk about it with others, present it more broadly. I was doing some of those more you know, out of step because I went public early on before I had a, a, a really strong supportive community. But I think finding others made it easier to then go further and do, do even more. So would you say then that having that strength of the community really gave you the courage to go public? Yes. I think that's a, yes, very, I think so. a very scary step. Yep. And what advice would you have for people who are trying to push the boundaries of the engineering education research community and know they're going to be doing different things, maybe using different methods or different theories, and now they're beginning to face that step of, 
of going public with it. What advice would you have for them? You know me, Ruth, and my favorite answer, it depends. It depends. <laughs> so it depends on the context. Um, if you're in a context where there isn't a lot of support, uh, start small, do little things, look for others, uh, look for a more senior person who you might get interested, maybe in your department, maybe in another department. Um, you know, watch out for yourself. Um, so start small, start early. You, there, there are things that most of us can do in our classes, little things that help us build up experience and confidence and, and, uh, and then find, find others. Mm -hmm. And that might mean finding others, you know, at a distance. Right, right. Hopefully, though, everyone can find someone nearby uh, to share successes with, to problem-solve struggles or failures. Uh, it just makes it so much easier to... Um, uh, and I had David and Roger Johnson. They're just superb mentors. Um, a lot. Do you want to say a little bit more about them? Because I, I know they are in some circles. They're incredibly famous, but other people might not know them. They, they developed the conceptual cooperative learning model uh, based on the work of Morton Deutsch, social independence theory, uh, in the 70s. I mean, I think their first paper was on cooperative learning was probably 74, 75. It was primarily K-12. Cooperative learning had gotten its start in, in higher education. Uh, Morton Deutsch, who was at Columbia, did the first systematic study of cooperative learning in engineering education at MIT. It was published in 1948. Uh, and then one of Bill McKeechee's students, um, Haynes, did a study, a systematic study of cooperative learning uh, at Michigan uh, in the 50s. But David and Roger, I think, saw that there was so much need uh, and a lot of interest and support in K-12 that they just sort of igno you know, ignored higher ed. Uh, they had to make choices, I think, about where to allocate their resources. And they were at the University of Minnesota. They were at the University still, of Minnesota still are, together. Right? They're both retired, but they still travel internationally. And uh, one, of the, one of the prompting uh, events that, that got, uh, well, two, uh, that got more and more schools interested in cooperative learning was one, um, you know, court-based desegregation, and then uh, the mainstreaming law, Public Law 94-142, mm -hmm. which says all students have a right to access to the broader peer group. And so how do you bring people who are different together in meaningful ways? And just putting them together in close proximity without changing the way that they meet and interact doesn't help. Mm -hmm. And so cooperative learning was, was really instrumental in helping uh, with uh, creating supportive learning environments uh, in the, with the mainstreaming law and in, in desegregated schools. And then so when I came along, I was interested in higher ed um, I've worked a little bit with high, with high school teachers, but uh, I don't have skills for working with elementary or middle, middle school students. Uh, worked with teachers, 
but I was most interested in higher ed. So I kind of re-sparked their interest in higher ed, and in 91, we did a research monograph and the first uh, practitioner guide for cooperative learning in, in higher ed. Mm-hmm. And they, they, they still do some higher ed things. They did an ERM distinguished lecture a few years ago, uh, but their emphasis is more, more K-12. K-12. Mm-hmm. And now there's a, you know, a broader group of people internationally who work you know, in higher ed with cooperative learning. So they were kind enough to take you under their wing. They adopted me, essentially. So I did lots and lots of workshops with them. And, uh, you know, they, they would identify opportunities um, and when I would get invited. So that was another thing that opened up pathways. It's somebody who would contact them and say, we, we want a workshop for our faculty in such and such community college and... Roger would call me and say, you know, we're not available, could you do this? So, so that, that's another way I, you know, I, I wound up doing more, more workshops. So one of the things that um, Parker Palmer's model would predict, um, the after people have determined kind of their true self, they've found others, they've gotten support, they've gone public, then they work to change the system. Yes. And do you see that happening with regards to cooperative learning in engineering education, that people are working to change the system, in other words, make it more uh, acceptable, make it more common, make it more usual? Yes. Uh, I mean, there are several initiatives. The big one was the National Academy Study Discipline-Based Education Research, and then the Practitioner Guide, really, really looking at effective practices and with high standards of evidence, and then uh, advocating for them with the practitioner book reaching students. Um, and the National Academies have a lot of credibility, so I think that helps. Um, Folks like Carl Wyman uh, and the uh, you know, the physics ed group, mm-hmm. um, they they have helped to have a Nobel laureate saying really need to change these these practices. One of the most active groups right now is a it's called the Accelerating Systemic Change in STEM Undergraduate Education. It's it's really about systemic change or institutional transformation, and their centerpiece is research-based instructional practices, of which cooperative learning is one. And so they're really focused on understanding how, how do we transform institutions to get more of these evidence-based or research-based instructional strategies. Um, the National Science Foundation Innovation Core for Learning uh, is another, you know, another uh, program for really trying to s- sustain and scale uh, research-based educational mm-hmm. practices. So there's a bunch of things going on. It's not easy. Um, faculty in, in engineering, like faculty in most STEM disciplines, have been through many, many years of traditional practice. Lecture, recitation, homework, exams. And, uh, you know, when you spend many, many years being you know, socialized in a, in a particular practice, 
and maybe occasionally or rarely seeing some other practice, it's quite hard to change if that's the, the majority of what you've experienced. I mean, that's the core of your experience. It's what you know. It's what you've succeeded at. And, uh, and I think that's part of the reason why it's, why it's really hard, hard to change. Um, and, and some of these practices, uh, the really, really effective ones, like cooperative problem-based learning, you know, are not easy to implement. Right. Well, I, mean, I shouldn't say that. They're easy to implement poorly. Poorly, yeah. <laughs> They're, They're hard to do well. difficult to do well. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I think there, there just um, hasn't been the, as Sherry Shepard would say, the will to do this on the part of institutions. Um, I mean, there's, there are a lot of individual faculty who care a great deal about their students' learning and want to use the most effective practices may or may not be in a context that makes that easy to do. And so, I mean, I'm, I'm eternally optimistic, uh, some would say naively so, um, but I think, you know, with the emergence of engineering education as a discipline where we actually have more and more people who not only are familiar with the evidence, but have gathered some of the evidence, who have experienced more uh, research-based instructional practices that over time the, the practices will change. It essentially follows Arnold Aaron's argument. You want to change education, um, start with graduate programs. If you change the experience in graduate programs, graduate students go off and teach in all kinds of institutions. The kinds that prepare teachers, the kinds that you know, work with all kinds of students, and if they do some, if they learn to do something different in graduate school and then go and practice it, it will, it will change the world. Well, I think that's a perfect way to end. Um, I know you, your life has inspired me, Carl, and I hope that our listeners are inspired as well and have the courage to be divided no more and to follow their heart and find others and change the world. So thank you very much. Thank you, Ruth. Research Briefs is produced by the School of Engineering Education at Purdue. Thank you to Patrick Vogt for composing our theme music. A transcript of this podcast can be found by googling Purdue Engineering Education Podcast. And please check out my blog, ruthstreveler.wordpress.com. Thank you.